It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, June 23rd, 2009. You know, some of the things I encounter while dumpster diving is just silly. Ugh. Big debate today with myself as to which sermon I'm going to be reviewing. I'm, I'm not even certain that I've nailed down which one I want to talk about. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And I would even say you have to compare what they're doing, not just saying in, uh, nowadays, too. Oh, boy. All right, so we got... <laughs> We've got an interesting program lined up today. I, I, you know, I, I still have not officially come down on which uh, sermon I'm going to be reviewing here. I have some potential ones. And the nice thing about the sermons is, is uh, that I'm debating on is that there's gospel in, in the two major candidates that I'm looking at here. The two sermons I'm debating on reviewing, one of them is from a church in uh, North Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina, entitled... Primp, my mom. Now, the, the the graphic, the sermon graphic for this thing, it uh, it looks exactly like the logo for the Pimp My Ride television program. And there's this tiny little microscopic R. If you blink, you'd miss it. I missed it. I was thinking, this, this, this guy actually preached a sermon called Pimp My Mom. And uh, somebody on Twitter pointed out to me, you know, Chris, that's an R there. It's like, oh, wow. You know, and, you know, what's funny is, is that the guy has a, a, a not a perfect gospel uh, presentation in his sermon. There's some problems with it. and We can unpack that. Uh, but my question is, why the salacious reference? The, the stu- it's really dumb to, to use that to highlight the gospel message and to make matters worse. He preached the sermon on Mother's Day. It's like, you know, I went downstairs and asked, asked my wife and the girls, I said, how would you like to go to a church where the pastor, you know, preached a Mother's Day sermon uh, that could be misconstrued as pimp my mom? <laughs> looked at me like, you've got to be kidding. But then again, my family just rolls their eyes nowadays, you know, because I, I for whatever reason, I just I there seems to be a never ending, unending supply of this juvenile stupidity coming out of these seeker driven churches. And they think they're making Christianity cool and appealing. And in reality, they're just making it look stupid. But uh, and then the other one has to do with the environmental Jesus. The sermon itself has a very clear gospel message in it. And I'm thinking, why mix it with this environmental thing? Uh, Why are you trying to pitch Jesus as, you know, uh, the Al Gore of uh, religion? You know, it's... So both of the sermons I'm trying... And I think that's the reason why I'm debating is I haven't decided yet which one I'm going to... I might have to flip a coin. So, uh, just so you know, I'm debating here with myself as to which sermon I really do want to review. 
All right, uh, talking about what we're going to be talking about in the program today, uh, Todd Bentley is back. He's uh, launched a brand new website. Uh, he's back. Todd Bentley, the guy who led that circus down in uh, in Lakeland, Florida, they called the Florida Outpouring. The guy who basically, uh, you know, we lovingly refer to him as Bam Bam because he was always saying Bam Bam, and the outrageous stories that panned out to be complete fabrications and concoctions in the name of the Holy Spirit. You know, he was, uh, and, you know, he had to shut the whole operation down when it found out that he had was having an affair with the family babysitter. And so he's been going through a, quote, restoration process while well, he's back. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit today. And then, uh, as promised yesterday, we uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about the uh, Christian Post story that says that survey that basically reveals information about mega churchgoers. Well, there's also another survey that Barna has put out, and I tweeted this out earlier today, basically thinking this is just a duh story. Uh, apparently, survey explores Christian faith of homosexuals, and you get this: homosexuals uh, don't really aren't that committed to Christianity, really, oh, man. Uh, we got Tony Jones uh, part three. We're going to get to today talking about original sin, and we'll dive into the biblical aspects of original sin we got a brand new marty python's flying circus church sketch that uh we're going to be playing here on today's program my son and i have while he's been here we've we've been having creative brainstorming sessions and we've got a couple of new marty pythons uh recorded and in the can and we're working on more of them although i gotta let you know those of you who uh who did pray for uh, for me yesterday uh, the, for the Frisbee golf outing. My, since my son came back from the Navy, he was on leave, uh, we've we've been playing a lot of disc golf. Um, you know, that, that's golf with Frisbees. I know, you know to those of you golf purists out there you know, may not think it's like golf. Really, it, it, the nice thing about it is it's a little bit more rewarding than real golf because, you know, all you have to do is throw the Frisbee, but it has, employs a lot of the same strategies. But uh, my son was up three to two in the in the tournament, and I was afraid that we were going to uh, that I was going to lose, and it was just. <laughs> and so yesterday, uh, you know, I really concentrated, really poured it on, and then uh, shot a nine under par yesterday to defeat my son and tie the the Roseboro Family Cup. And because uh, today they're all packing up and getting ready, you know, Josh is packing up and getting ready to go. We don't have the ability to play another uh, round, so it's tied. The there there is no declared winner for the uh, summer two thousand and nine Roseboro Family Disc Golf Cup, and uh, so neither one of us suffers the shame of of having been defeated by the other. And I'm just a little bit worried that he's going to go back to uh, Charleston and spend hours and days practicing and uh, of course I'll have to do the same just to uh, avoid the embarrassment come christmas time if the weather permits we <laughs> might have to have another crack at this so just want to let you know how that all went out uh went down and so but anyway we got a brand new uh, Marty Python Marty Python's Flying Circus Church and then sometime in the program today I'll decide whether or not we're going to be doing a sermon review on the green jesus or the uh uh or the Primp, it's really small R, Primp My Mom sermon. Again, there, both sermons have some redeeming qualities. There's more than a gospel nugget in both of them. Uh, but, yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> anyway. So, with that in mind, uh, what I think we could do first, you know, just thinking about this, 
and that is is that we probably should do uh, the re- the revealing the the uh, f- for those of you listening to the podcast and on Pirate Christian Radio, uh, play and uh, in it, the brand new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch. The name of the sketch, by the way, is uh, is uh, uh, the Dead Sermon. That's it's called the Dead Sermon sketch. Uh, just by way of a little bit of uh, you know intro, and that is is that those of you familiar with Monty Python, um, you're familiar with the Dead Parrot sketch. Well, this uh, well it it uses similar themes to that one. So without any further ado, we'd like to uh, in, to premiere our brand new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church sketch entitled the Dead Sermon. It's Python's Flying Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title... Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus, uh, uh, 
Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Well, there you have it, the premiere of the uh, first new uh, Marty Python's Flying Circus Church that we've done here in a while. And uh, we've uh, I've given uh, Petty Officer Roseboro a little bit of uh, recording equipment that he can take with him back to Charleston so we uh, can continue to produce Marty Python's Flying Circus Churches because, actually, they're all kinds of fun. Now, all right, time for the... Uh, Switching gears here. Uh, I've said it, it. It's official. Todd Bentley is back. Yeah, Todd Bentley, the guy who uh, says that God told him to, you know, kick uh, a person with colon cancer, uh, kicked a woman with a biker boot in the face, you know, stuff like that. This this guy, he's uh, he's back. He had a. A tryst, if you would, with his uh, babysitter. They've uh, he's had a divorce, and now he's remarried, and he's been experiencing um, well recovery. I don't know how else to put it, uh, but he's back, and he's launched a brand new Fresh Fire Ministries, and their website is freshfireusa.com. And uh, here's Todd Bentley. By the way, at, at this place, at this new website. He's got a he's got a teaching video up on how you can know Jesus. Uh, they he's got books for sale and uh, he's relaunching his uh, his uh, preaching ministry and and you can even invite Todd uh, Bentley to come preach at your church you know and to uh, do his shtick at your church because you know if the old ladies there haven't had a biker boot in their face. Uh, you know, that's definitely a, an experience from God, to say the least. So here is uh, Todd Bentley uh, talking about uh, his brand new website and the things that he's uh, up to. Welcome to the support Fresh Fire area of our website. We have our website up as a great resource tool for communication. And there are lots of great things happening. And I, I'm excited to have the opportunity to welcome you as friends, donors, partners uh, to our new website. And for those of you that may be interested in, in partnering, so many of you have stood with us over the last decade in ministry as we've taken the gospel around the world to more than 65 countries, saw over one million decisions for Jesus Christ. and that A million? Wow. I mean... <laughs> A million decisions for Jesus, really. <sighs> Just the beginning. There's a great harvest here at the end of the age. And, and God is raising up harvesters. And we know that he's put it in your heart. He's put it in our heart. We can do it together. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's not just a gospel in word only, but a gospel in power. Oh, yeah. Well, see, it's... it's... It's not a gospel in word only. Who needs that wordy gospel? You know, the gospel that says, you know, Christ died for your sins. That gospel, 
too wordy. Not enough power. One of the things that we're most excited about, we're talking about why do you want to partner? Why do you want to support Fresh Fire? One of the things that we're excited about here on our website. I'm hoping and praying this falls on its face and everybody learned their lesson the first time with you and they're not foolish enough. (sighs) Is the new How to Know Jesus feature. It's a simple video clip sharing my testimony and giving an opportunity for people to receive Jesus Christ, how they can know his love and power and be transformed. And I want to encourage you, friends, I want to encourage you that if there's somebody in your family, an aunt, an uncle, maybe a son, maybe a daughter, somebody struggling with addiction or alcohol, hopelessness or suicide, just encourage them to come to the website and watch the How to Know Jesus video. We will bring them to not just the knowledge, but the experience of the presence, love, and power of Jesus. It's all about missions, evangelism, and revival. That's who we are, and that's that, that that's what God's doing in this hour. And so we want to encourage you as partners, take advantage of the How to Know Jesus, and we want to see uh, by the way, unless you want your son, daughter, or what, whoever to go to hell, don't send them to this website to, quote, learn how to know Jesus. As many people around the world that have never come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ have an opportunity through our website to know Jesus right there in their home. Maybe they're not comfortable with a conference. They're not comfortable with church. Maybe they're not comfortable with most preachers. But I, I believe that, that we can reach a whole generation with the gospel through the power of media. We're also excited right here on the Support Fresh Fire page. You can get information about our FIRE project, which is an outreach called Freeing um, the Innocent, Rescuing the Exploited. We have a vision for helping people, women and children that have been involved in human trafficking and the sex trade. There's also some great um, information about where we're... I just, I won't comment. We're going in the future. You can see our, our Fresh Fire Ministry vision and more. And we're just praying. I'm praying for you as a partner. So many of you that have come back to the ministry have come to the new website. And those of you that are considering, how can I stand with you, Todd, in the future? Stand with you in this season of restoration and healing. God has great things. The, the best wine is yet to come. And I just want to... Uh, the what? The best wine is yet to come. So is that a threat? encourage you today to consider sowing, planting a seed today into taking this gospel around the world. And uh, again, just encourage those that you know. You know, let's listen in. I'm curious. Let's let's listen in the first few minutes of this How to Know Jesus feature on their website. I can't wait to hear. Hi, my name is Todd Bentley. And uh, it's good to be here with you today. Fresh fire. You know, you hear that, that sound? That's the sound of flames. So maybe appropriate. My prayer and my hope is that you're watching this somewhere in your living room, on your computer, maybe even on your iPhone. And Jesus has a message for you. He does. Wow. <sighs> We're living in difficult times. Uh-huh. And there is fear and all kinds of uncertainty. And we need hope. We need an anchor in this hour. And I know that it's Jesus. And people have said, oh, I've heard the message about Jesus. I've heard all the Christianity. I don't want religion. I'm not talking about religion. I'm not talking about a government. I'm not talking about an organization. I'm talking about Jesus. You can know him. You can know his presence. You can feel his presence. You can know his joy. 
It just is really difficult hearing this from him. You can know his peace. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up. I didn't want anything to do with religion. Uh No Bible thumpers for me. But I know that I was in need. No, just biker boot thumpers for you. The Savior. False healings. Claims of healing. I was bound in addiction to drugs and alcohol. I overdosed on drugs three times by the time I was 17. And I may have loved the fast life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but... All right, no comment. I became not only addicted, but I made decisions because of my pain. I made decisions. You know, here's the deal. The thing that really torques me off the most is, listen, we're all sinners. So that part really doesn't bother me as much as the fact that this guy is a flat-out heretic. It, it just absolutely frosts me that people are just so biblically illiterate and don't know what their Bibles say and fall for these guys who are preaching rank heresy that the thing that they get them on eventually is some kind of a moral shortcoming, a moral failing. You know, that's like Al Capone. The guy was the worst gangsta. Sorry, that's kind of a that's a current way of saying it. he was the worst gangster of the of of the prohibition era in Chicago. And what did they eventually get him on? Tax evasion. It's like you're you know. So here we got Todd Bentley and this moral shortcoming thing. In my mind, that's just the same equivalent as tax evasion. And because people don't know how to exercise any biblical discernment, this guy is teed up, ready to be hit down the fairway for a yet another round of rank heresy. And the moral shortcoming, that just sidelined him for a year. Because of my fear and the struggles that I had with depression and the struggles that I had with abuse and some of the things that happened to me as a child. Let's face it, we all have pain. Many of us have an empty hole in our heart and we try to fill that empty hole. We try to fill that void with drugs, with sex, with whatever it is, addiction, entertainment, and, and we have the great question. We've all asked the great question. And I, I remember I thought about this, not only as a child, but as a teenager. There's got to be more. Why am I here? Where do I go when I die? And you can know. And not just because you prayed some prayer with a sinner or just because you prayed. <laughs> not because you just prayed some prayer with a sinner. Some sinner's prayer with a, a pastor or a preacher in a church or at an altar. But you can know in your heart. You can have a witness it's God's Holy Spirit. See, there it is again. It, you were, this is Mormonism. Uh, well, at least uh, similar to Mormonism. How do you know the Book of Mormon is true? Well, because I've had a burning in my bosom. Well, how do you know that if you didn't take a Pepsi, it wouldn't go away? You know, that's you don't determine truth this way. I had some kind of a feeling uh, experience, and I just knew it in my heart. That's ridiculous. You're... Uh, you don't run. You do not run with your elbows. You run with your feet and your legs. Elbows are not for running. It's not what they're meant for. You don't 
know something is true by feeling it in your heart. You're flexing the wrong muscle inside of you that you know that you know that you've been changed and transformed. And that's the message that I have for you today. How to know Jesus. It's the greatest. You haven't even gotten to that yet. Experience the greatest. Oh, you can know it because of the great experience. You know, Todd, we're, we're already off on the wrong foot here. And your newly launched teaching ministry via the uh, Internet, you're off on the wrong foot. And why? Well, because it's all coming back down to experience. You know, people in all different religions have experiences. How are we to determine whose experience is true or not? They all had them. There's no way to decide truth or decide how you know Jesus. ...is to know Jesus. And not just to have a knowledge, but to have an experience. To experience... Ah! His love, his power, his joy, his peace that surpasses all understanding. I grew up in a broken home, like many of you may be watching. And what happens when my feelings just aren't there? I don't know if you've noticed this, but feelings have a tendency to kind of be like a, a roller coaster at Six Flags Magic Mountain or Six Flags in Texas. Six Flags for the a roller coaster ride, if you would. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. Sometimes they're hot, sometimes they're cold. Sometimes you feel like you're on top of the world. And sometimes you feel like you've just been thrown under the bus. Watching right now, you may be struggling with addiction to drugs, cocaine, heroin. And you've, you've, you've come to um, our website here as a last resort to say, you know what? Who's this tattooed, crazy preacher that talks about Jesus? What about the person who isn't addicted to anything the way you've described it, and you need to convince them from Scripture that they're a sinner in need of a Savior? <sighs> and maybe you're here and, and you feel safe. And nobody knows that you're watching right now. Just you and me and God, and I'm speaking right to you. This is a message for you. And maybe you grew up in a broken home. I did. My mother and father divorced when I was about five years old. My mother raised me. And I got involved in all kinds of drugs and alcohol as early as 11 years old. I ended up in prison before I was 16. Spent time in more than five different juvenile prison facilities. Ended up on the street at 17 after overdosing, I, I told you, three times on drugs. Which probably explains why he's still a con artist to this day and why he's preaching heresy and telling such whopper stories it's just another form of criminal activity, stealing from people by telling them lies and uh, taking God's name in vain in the process, of course, saying that God is the one who told him to say these things. But when I was 18 years old, somebody had a message for me like I'm having for you right now. And they said, Todd, you need to know Jesus. He loves you. And I wanted to believe in God. I wanted to believe in eternity. I wanted to believe in heaven. And, you know, I knew there was hell. I, I believed in, in, in the supernatural. I believed in the demonic. And I, I had enough experiences in my, my childhood to realize, hey, you don't have to tell me that, that there's occultic, satanic powers, new age. I said, I believe in all that, but there's got to be more. And, and I said, Jesus, if you're real, then I need you to make yourself real to me. And maybe that's all you need to do right now. Make yourself real to me, Jesus. Make yourself. And he can help you in whatever situation. You may be facing a divorce or, or bankruptcy right now. And it may not be an addiction. And you're just at the end of yourself. And you're saying, I need something more in my life. 
And it can be a simple, Jesus, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And he will right now. And I remember I prayed at 18 years old. I was in my drug dealer's trailer. And I heard God speak to me. Listen now. Listen now. And I, I, I said, if you're real, Jesus, I need you to save me. Forgive me of my sin. Have you ever said, I wish I could turn back the clock? Could I, if I could do things differently. All of us have regrets and shame and mistakes, and we want to move on. Only in Jesus, you can be a new creation. Uh-huh. Old things pass away. It's the great message. You can be born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And it's as simple. There's three real simple steps to being changed. You can be a new creation. <clears throat> three easy steps. Mm-hmm. That makes it my responsibility. We continue. Old things pass away. You can be born again. It's like I'm brand new. You can know- You can do it. You can make yourself be born again. Know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Three simple steps. And the, the first one, and I'm just going to read a Bible verse out uh-huh. of the book of Romans, right. the 10th chapter. Okay. And there's three simple steps that I'm going to give you on how to know Jesus. Romans chapter 10, and I'm reading in the Bible out of the 8th verse. What does it say? The word is near, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith in which we preach. What? <sighs> that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes, saved from hell's fires, saved from eternal damnation. Uh, why do I feel like there's a but coming? Yeah, because that's what everybody's doing nowadays. Purpose-driven guys, new, new mystics, emergence, and uh, whatever you want to call these guys, these uh, the new tele-evangelists. He just said, yeah, you can be saved from hell and, and have your sins forgiven. There's going to be more. Hang on. But. Yeah, there it is. <sighs> Got to add something to the gospel here because that gospel's not good enough. Jesus said, I've come to have that you may have life and you may have life more abundantly. Some- oh, boy. Okay, so there you have it. Yeah, you have it. So he, he also teaches that uh, abundant life heresy. Uh, go and read that passage in context if you don't know what I'm talking about here. Because if you really want to know what it means, read it in context. Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know what, well, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give you forgiveness of sins and wash you and raise you from the dead. But that's just the, the simple stuff. I've come that you can have an abundant life here on earth. And that means you can have whatever you want. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. Uh, you can have a Mercedes Benz. You can have uh, a ten million dollar mansion in the suburbs of Atlanta. <sighs> All right. Well, <clears throat> we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, and I have a moment to calm down, <sighs> we'll talk about this uh, survey on America's mega churchgoers and this new uh, Barna survey on the f- explores the Christian faith of homosexuals and then we'll talk uh, we'll listen to tony jones on original sin and then i have to make a decision on which sermon i'm going to review and those of you listening live if you would like to vote uh, just visit my facebook account and leave your vote on the wall there that would be great um if you oh man if you'd like to email me you can talk back at fighting for the faith.com that's talk back at fighting for the faith.com we'll be right back 
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God... Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. back you are listening to fighting for the faith warning this program is not politically correct nor is it for the faint-hearted those who uh, fear polemical ways of doing things this uh, program could definitely upset some apple carts and uh, why well because we slaughter sacred cows on a daily basis here at fighting for the faith 
And uh, it's a job that needs to be done. Remember, uh, we're told to preach the word to rebuke, <laughs> encourage, uh, you know, things like that. But rebuke and reproach are part of the jobs that we as Christians have. Taking thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. Uh, that has more to do with bad theology and heretical, idolatrous ideas than it does with... Um, let's just say sinful thoughts that might be flitting, flitting around in your brain. All right. So, okay. Uh, let's see here. Just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio. That means that your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing fighting for the faith to you. You can support us a few ways. Uh, primarily though, you can visit fighting for the click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. And that allows you to uh, send your gift in instantaneously, securely online, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. You know, one of the things I've noticed here, I'm a transplanted Hoosier. Uh, I guess uh, I've been transplanted out of uh, Southern California soil into uh, Hoosier soil here in Indiana. And I noticed uh, something. During the winter time. Uh, you need a special formula for your windshield wiper fluid. You, you know, the stuff that sprays onto your windshield. In the wintertime, you need something that can cut through ice and de-ice your, uh, your windshield. In the summertime, you need a, a, a formula that can get rid of bugs uh, because uh, <clears throat> the bugs are a little thick around here. And uh, my, my daughters are really excited about the fact that we have fireflies. That's something that you don't get in... Uh, in Southern California, so that's uh, that's all kinds of exciting <laughs> for us. But like I said, wintertime you need a de-icer for your windshield. During the summertime, you need a debugger. Uh, so, uh, and some of you are just going, "Ew, gross." Yeah, well, you know it is what it is. All right, uh, moving to the news. Headline reads: Survey examines America's mega churchgoers story I've been threatening to get to for a while. From the Christian Post. Uh, who is the author on this one? Hang on a second here. This one's a kind of a long story. Uh, Lillian Kwan, Christian Post reporter. Um, co- compared to attendees of a typical Protestant church, people who attend megachurches are more likely to be young, single, uh, educated, and wealthier in a new survey, a new survey revealed. Uh, based on my observation and the types of sermons we review here, yeah, they not only are going to be young, they're going to be juvenile. They're adult uh, kids in adults' clothing, if you would. Uh, let's see. The majority of megachurch attendees, 62%, are under the age of 45, whereas less than half, 35%, of those in a typical congregation fall in the 18 to 44 age range, according to Megachurch Report by Scott Thuma of Hartford Institute for Religion Research and Warren Bird of Leadership Network. Uh, the report, who not who you think they are, the real story of people who attend America's megachurches, is based on data from a national survey that drew 24,900 responses from 12 carefully selected megachurches across the country. It is claimed to be the largest national representative study of megachurch attendees conducted by any researchers to date. With more than 5 million people worshiping at megachurches, Protestant churches of 2,000 or more weekly attendees in a typical week, Thuma and Bird sought to provide a look at who these worshipers are. 
why they come, and why they stay. Until now, very little was known about those who attended these churches. The researchers uh, state in the report released Tuesday. For comparison, the researchers uh, used findings from the U.S. Congregational Life Study, a study of Protestant churches of all sizes that was completed in April of 2001. They found that in addition to drawing more young adults, megachurches tend to bring in more single, unmarried people than a typical church. Nearly a third of megachurch attendees are single compared to just 10% of a typical congregation. So 33% uh, of those attending a megachurch are single. The vast majority, 80% of those in a typical congregation, are married or widowed. Mega churches also tend to draw a lot more new people compared to the typical church. Now, hold on a second here. I want to point something out to you. Just because they're new people doesn't mean that they're non-Christians. We continue. Over two-thirds, that's 68% of mega church attendees have been there five years or less. Uh, let me help you out with this. That's almost 70%. Almost 70% of mega church attendees have been there for five years or less or less than five years. What does that tell you? Five years? That's the, the, the 70% of the people attending a mega church. One of the things I've known for a long time in talking with pastors and people who are involved in mega churches is that their back door is very active. Okay. In fact, in a recent sermon, uh, Rick Warren, I was listening to a, rec a recent Rick Warren sermon where he basically said that, yeah, we have over 100,000 members at Saddleback. But on any given weekend, only about twenty to 25,000 of those people show up. That means that three-quarters of the people who are, quote, attendees at Saddleback don't attend in, uh, on any kind of regular basis at all. And <clears throat> keep this in mind. That's funny that this is 70% of mega of attendees have only been there for five years. While uh, only 40% of those in churches of all sizes joined the church uh, recently, almost half, 45% of attendees of a typical church have been there for uh, more than 10 years. Although mega churches have nearly twice as many new attendees, most of the new people are already, are already Christians and came from another church so this myth that these mega churches are engaging in quote church growth is just that it's a complete myth this study proves it so let me read this sentence again because it's so wonderfully delicious although mega churches have nearly twice as many new attendees most of the new people are already christians and came from another church 77% said they have been a long time committed christ followers for 7 or more years and only 2% said they are not a follower so of the people attending mega churches only 2% are people who are not followers of christ only now, that's if you evaluate them based upon their self-profession rather than according to their theology. Uh, when you look at the theological survey re results, for, like from the, from the Reveal Now study, <laughs> you got a problem here because uh, it all depends on how you define the term Christian. And notice here that this study is defining them as Christ followers. Again, I've got problems with that. Most megachurch attendees, 82%, come uh, at the invitation of a friend, family member, 
or a co-worker of the study found, and only 19% said they saw the church or viewed media about it and came on their own. Only 16% said they viewed the church's website before attending. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, there's more that I could read about this, but I think you get the gist of it. This this study kind of blows a big hole in a lot of the claims being made by uh, these the church growth purpose-driven types that somehow that the way you do evangelism is you don't feed God's sheep. Instead, you um, entertain goats, and that's how you do evangelism. Only 2% of the people attending megachurches are not Christians anyway, and the majority of the people who show up there are people who've been Christians for a long time, and then at that they don't stay very long. Oh, boy. So church shopping is alive and well, which basically, you know, if you could kind of chart this all out, what does this mean for the long term of the whole mega church uh, movement and this seeker-driven, purpose-driven mega church model? Uh, they're eventually going to run out of people. And the whole thing's going to collapse like a house of cards. It's just do the math. You know, I learned how to do that in one of those budgeting sermons that we did. You just do the math. They're going to run out of people. It's just how that happens. Okay, this falls under the category of kind of like, duh. Um, survey explores Christian faith of homosexuals. Uh, the Barna Group released a new study that explores the faith life of homosexuals compared to heterosexuals. Survey findings indicate that straights are more likely to be committed to their Christian faith than gays and lesbians. How much money was wasted on this study? It really? Yeah, I think I can come up with a reason why. It has to do with any real biblical-based Christian church is going to tell homosexuals that they are engaging in sin. Just like, again, this is ridiculous, and I'll show you why. It really, just come take the word homosexual out of the title here of this thing and come and write down adulterers. Survey explores Christian faith of adulterers. You think, uh, you know, and this would be this would be active uh, adulterers, right? These are people again who are identifying themselves based upon their sinful behavior, and it doesn't work as soon as you substitute the word homosexual with the word adulterer. The, okay, survey findings indicate that straights are more likely to be committed to their Christian faith than gays. Yeah, it's because most Christian pastors are going to tell homosexuals that they're in sin. Nearly half, 47% of heterosexual adults qualify as born-again Christians compared to 27% of homosexuals. Also, 75% of straight adults reported having made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today. See, if... Um, if you think that you making a personal commitment to Jesus is the equivalence of being born again, uh, first of all, you're gravely mistaken. Uh, theologically, you are in error. It's not taught in scriptures. Uh, then, but it leads to these kind of ridiculous things. Well, you know, I, so what happens is you got 27% of homosexuals basically uh, s saying that they've made a, commit a commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life. And they are unrepentant in still practicing homosexuality. Well, I, I made a commitment to Jesus, and that's still important. Oh, okay, I guess we'll have to say that you're a Christian then. While 6 out of 10 heterosexuals said they are absolutely committed to the Christian faith, only 4 out of 10 homosexuals expressed such commitment. 
Okay, who wrote this story? <sighs> Sometimes you can... Uh, Audrey Barrick, Christian Post reporter. I want to show you a little bit of something here. Um, there's... <laughs> statistics are, are very funny things. Um, what did uh, Mark Twain said? That there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there's statistics. Watch what we can do with this sentence. Audrey here from the Christian Post, um, paragraph number four states, While six out of ten heterosexuals said they are absolutely committed to the Christian faith, that's 60% of heterosexuals, only four out of ten homosexuals expressed such commitment. The word only is a little bit odd here, and I'll explain why. Because when you were to just statistically point this out, you could say this. You watch what happens when I retool this uh, the sentence. Uh, you know, while six out of ten heterosexuals said they are absolutely committed to the Christian faith, surprisingly, four out of ten homosexuals express the same such commitment. Change the word only to uh, surprisingly, and all of a sudden the whole thing changes. Because what are you basically saying is, is that 60% of heterosexuals are say they're absolutely committed to the Christian faith, and 40% of homosexuals are ex express the same commitment. Do you think there's a problem with how they're defining Christianity here? Uh, and see, the thing is, is that if you are a, if you are a Christian of the stripe who believes that you making a commitment to Jesus is the equivalent of being born again, uh, then you're completely at a loss when it comes to being able to say, well, I don't know, is that ho unrepentant homosexual, my brother in Christ? They twist God's word and justify their actions and say that, you know, uh, I don't know, but they've made a commitment to Jesus. I, I, should I judge you? I just, yeah, you should, because... Again, this is what this calls for is monergism, not this synergism and Pelagianism that is running rampant. Okay, moreover, about half of straight adults said their life has been greatly transformed by their faith, while only a third of homosexuals agreed. Still, one third, one third of homosexuals uh, believe that their their lives have been transformed by their faith. Um, which kind of leads to the question, again, why is it that we're defining Christianity as something that, quote, transforms people's lives? Have you ever watched the uh, television, sh television show The Biggest Loser? Now, now, I know some of you are thinking, well, you know, Chris, you know, you are a guy of girth. You could probably go. No, I'm not that girthy, but I still need to lose about 65 pounds. Um, the, the, the television show The Biggest Loser, that show changes people's lives, doesn't it? Think about it. This past season, there was a guy who lost 120-something pounds on this program. You, know, you watch these people week after week after week, and by the end they do the before and after pictures, and these people's lives have been transformed. They've been changed. They've experienced life change, and Jesus didn't have anything to do with it. What did Jesus have to do with it? Nothing. The, what what had to do? What did it have to do with? Getting out of your normal habit, living on a farm, you know, a, or a, a, a ranch, if you would, a, a, a place where you can get away from the real world, 
and experience intensive weight loss, physical fitness training, a good diet, completely breaking you of all of your bad habits. And it takes weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months for this to happen. But lo and behold, for those who stick it out, those who follow the program, those who follow the advice of their personal trainers, their lives are completely transformed. They've experienced life change. And why? Because they have made a personal commitment to doing a particular thing. And as a result of it, they put in and they got out what they put in and that is weight loss and a transformed life and all without Jesus which begs the question well if you're going to define christianity as you making a commitment to Jesus and uh having a, you know and having that commitment transformed you um why do you need Jesus uh, those people who go on to the Biggest Loser, they don't need Jesus. They just need the fortitude to uh, get on the treadmill, to lift the weights, to do the the crunches and the and the squats and the curls and the and all that stuff, right? Dig deep within themselves and make the right decisions to put away the donut and pick up the cantaloupe, to put away the Twinkie and grab the banana instead, to rather than sit there, get up and do something. Their lives are transformed and... What What is it that people are doing? They've transformed Christianity into a self-help, personal transformation therapy. And that's all that the reality TV show, The Biggest Loser, is. It's an intensive therapy for life change. And it works for some people, and some people it doesn't work for. Right? If you're going to define Christianity as you making a commitment to Jesus and having your life transformed by your faith, then you're com going to be completely at a loss as to whether or not uh, these uh, is it. See, the, the the real problem with this entire Barna Group survey is it has completely got the wrong definition of Christianity, and as a result of it, it doesn't get to the nub, and that's the the nub is that we're all sinful by nature, whether you're heterosexual, whether or not. The sins that you struggle with are homosexual sins, whether you, the sin that you struggle with is lying, gossiping, thieving, cheating, stealing, name it. God's law puts us all into the same bucket. Every one of us. The bucket is labeled sinner. That bucket is on its way to hell. Christ comes and dies on the cross and literally propitiates God's wrath and takes on the penalty for the sins of the whole world, right? He doesn't promise life transformation per se. Granted, the Christian hope is ultimately in this amazing life transformation that occurs on the last day, the big one. Uh, transformation, resurrection from the dead, the resurrection to eternal life. Okay, And there are Christians who are poor. There are Christians who are overweight. There are Christians who have cancer. There are Christians who, have, uh, who are marathon runners and are as healthy as, as a horse. Because Christ doesn't promise this side of the resurrection that your life is going to be fine and dandy. 
he doesn't promise that at all. He does promise suffering, he, and he promises death. But he also promises that those who believe in him will not experience death, that even though they die, yet shall they live. So um, here's the problem with this, is that survey explores the Christian faith of homosexuals as if there is such a thing as an unrepentant Christian homosexual. That would be somebody who is defiant, basically giving God uh, an obscene gesture and telling him they're going to do it their way. They don't want to hear the truth. Just like, you know, survey explores Christian faith of active, uh, of active adulterers. We've got a problem. We've lost all concept of sin and even church discipline and the, the job of the church when somebody is unrepentant and engaging in this type of behavior, any kind of unrepentant, gross, negligent sin like this, the job of the church is to call them to repentance. And if they don't repent, cast them out. <sighs> I, you know, it's funny as uh, you know, I'm listening to myself saying this, and inside my head, I'm going, "Who's going to believe that anymore?" You know this. Church discipline, sin, these are antiquated ideas. These are not relevant. How People want something that's relevant for their life that will help them and encourage them to achieve their dreams for their life. Well, that's great. You don't, just don't come to Christianity for that because Christianity doesn't really offer it the way these therapies do because Christianity is not a therapy. All right, we're running a little long. Time for our second break. When we come back, we're going to listen to Tony Jones on Original Sin and look at what the Bible has to say about that. And then i got to make a decision as to which sermon we're going to review. So stay tuned. Lots still to come. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can look me up on Facebook or Twitter. My name at Twitter is Pirate Christian and the, my Facebook profile is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. 
If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. You know, I'm probably going to end up having to flip a coin here. All right, I've got a coin. All right, let's see. Heads, it goes to the uh, Primp My Mom sermon, and tails, it goes to the Green Environmental Jesus sermon. So here we go. Heads, it's... uh, Flipping the coin here, it's heads. We're going to go with the Print My Mom sermon. Just want to let you all know that. Okay, let's see. Uh, all right. Hour number two here of Fighting for the Faith. As promised, we're going to go do part three of uh, of listening to and examining the sound bites of Tony Jones's appearance on the uh, one, uh, 1-1 one radio program. And uh, this is him discussing... Um, the doctrine of original sin or whether or not we're sinful by nature. Here we go. Here's Tony Jones. You and I would also have to debate out is what you mean by the term sinful. But uh, what the, the, the actual doctrine of original sin as it was developed by Augustine. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay. Did, I don't, I don't know if you all caught that. Uh, Tony Jones just basically is here making the claim that the doctrine of original sin is a doctrine that was originally developed by Augustine. Um, Let me back this up and get a little bit of uh, context here. You and I would also have to debate out is what you mean by the term sinful. But uh, the, the, the actual doctrine of original sin as it was developed by Augustine... 
and reified by, not particularly by Calvin, but by those who came after Calvin by about 100 years, in the who developed five-point Calvinism and the Westminster Confession and things of that nature, I do not think it's a biblical. I, I think it's a. I think it's based on Platonic philosophy and cosmology, not particularly on the biblical text. All right, so there you got Tony Jones talking about the doctrine of original sin, basically saying that it's based upon Platonic philosophy. It was, quote, developed by Augustine. He doesn't think it's biblical or based upon the biblical text. It is based on, uh, well, if you would, um, well, philosophy, not God's word. Now, we got this one major um, problem, and that is is that, you know, Scripture couldn't be clearer when it comes to what is going on with humanity and the doctrine of original sin. Now, with the Lutheran Church, uh, I am a confessional Lutheran. And now I say that because there's a lot of Lutherans running around the landscape out there. And there's a whole group of Lutherans in you know that are liberals and in the ELCA church that are doing such crazy things as ordaining homosexuals and all that kind of chicanery. And uh, that that ain't the Lutheranism uh, that I subscribe to. They are not confessional Lutherans. Uh, those people are apostates. Um, so just want to make sure you kind of you, you get this. But the, in the Lutheran Church, you know, being a confessional Lutheran, I subscribe to the confessions of the Lutheran faith. The confessions basically uh, tell, basically outline what it is that uh, that we believe Scripture teaches. In regards to key doctrines, you know what is the what is the scriptures about? What you know, uh, basically, where do we get our, our our ideas from? How can you summarize them? If you really wanted to know what it is, I believe, and I get this, you know, question quite a bit on my uh, on my blogs and uh, on my websites, emails asking, well, what is it that you believe? If you want to know completely thoroughly what it is, I believe, uh, you can go and get a copy of the Book of Concord. Okay. That, in my opinion, is a correct interpretation of scriptures. In fact, you know that's a great, fantastic summary of the cardinal doctrines in scripture and the polemical and uh, biblical basis for uh, supporting and defending those particular doctrines and, and articles of faith. If you want the quick synopsis, though, uh, Augsburg Confession. The Augsburg Confession would be it. So from the Augsburg Confession, let me read to you what, uh, what the Lutherans, confessional Lutherans, how they define original sin, and then we'll, we can go in and we'll do a little bit of biblical work here to see if this can be supported from Scripture. Uh, furthermore, it is taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all human beings who are born in the natural way are conceived and born in sin. This means that from birth they are full of evil lust and inclination and cannot by nature possess true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this same innate disease and original sin is truly sin and condemns to God's eternal wrath all who are not in turn born anew through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Rejected then are the Pelagians, 
and others who do not regard original sin as sin in order to make human nature righteous through natural powers, your own steam, if you would, thus insulting the suffering and merit of Christ. Now, I bring this up in part because it's good to, you first got to define your terms, okay? You're going to say you believe in the doctrine of original sin, you got to define, well, what, what do you mean by the doctrine of original sin? Okay, and you know, to give you a further foil, it with you know, Lutherans uh, seem to be polemical. We like writing theses and um, and not only telling you what we believe, but also who's wrong. Um, re- we reject the Pelagians, the Pelagian heresy, and that's what it is, folks. It's a heresy taught that man was not originally sinful. Man was basically good. That his sinfulness was a result of environmental things, and that man could muster within himself. The, to make the right decisions to love God and to uh, love neighbor, to obey the God's law, if you would. Okay? And uh, sadly, Tony Jones has put himself into the Pelagian camp. He rejects the doctrine of original sin, and he falls it more in line with the Pelagians. Okay? And he claims that this is his decision is based upon a careful reading of Scripture, and uh, and that uh, you know that's that's how things anyway. You, you kind of get what he what he's getting at here. All right. So now, what's the biblical basis for the doctrine of original sin? Can you know? Is there any support for this idea that man is by nature sinful and not capable of true fear and love and trust in God? Oh yes, there is. Okay. The, uh, most certainly there is. Let, let's just get a couple of verses out onto the table, and I think you'll you'll see what I'm talking about here. Hold on one second. Got to pull something up on my uh, <clears throat> okay, negative and positive. Here we go. Uh, this if subjects of hereditary sin. There we go. Sorry, I just had to look something up there for myself in order to speak to this issue correctly. Okay. Um, let's just do a little bit of work. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. We seem to be doing Ephesians chapter 2 quite a bit lately. Uh, but then again, it's a, it's a fantastic passage. We go to it, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, starting in verse 1, Paul writing, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And were by nature children of of wrath. That is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Let me me see. I'm, I'm just curious here. Uh, okay, all of us live among the gratifying by nature. There it is, sarks, and by our flesh. Okay, uh, so okay, just I want to do a little Greek work there. So, by nature, we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. So, already we've got a passage here that pretty much lays it out that uh, we are by nature children of wrath.
Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, this is David writing, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David is not here saying that his mom was a loose woman who, uh, and that he's um, an illegitimate child. Mm-mm. He's saying that he was sinful from the moment his mother con- conceived him. He's talking about his sinful nature. That's Psalm 51, verse 5. Now, there's more. Um, let's see here. Okay, Romans chapter 5. This one is worth reading in context. Um, in fact, remember, our rules for biblical interpretation are that you, you know, our three rules are context, context, and context. Um, let me see here. Let me back this up. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, that means are powerless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, notice that uh, this passage here, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. That, that has to do with our nature, not our behavior. Our behavior comes from our nature. Okay? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him by, uh, from, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Notice again, he's taught, by nature, we were enemies. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved uh, by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, yeah, Romans 5.12 Maybe Paul was imbibing on too much Plato of Plato's philosophy here. I don't see it at all. For sin indeed was in the world uh, before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many, as the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's all from Romans chapter 5. You think the scriptures are there arguing that we are, that in Adam we all became sinners, that we all died and experienced death, condemnation, and God's wrath? That's exactly what the passage states. 
rather clearly not and these are not ambiguous terms being thrown around here by the apostle paul it's as clear as a bell yet tony jones uh, one of the leaders of the uh, leaderless emergent church movement it says that if you believe in the doctrine of original sin uh, that, that that came about as a result of some uh, development by the uh, by augustine and uh, and and later by the Calvinists who were imbibing in Plato's philosophy. To which I say, hogwash and poppycock. Absolutely not. No way Jose ain't true. What he just said is a flat-out, bald-faced lie and shows that he plays with the scriptures and uh, picks and chooses smorgasbord style, if you would, those which he wants to believe and those he doesn't want to believe, he comes up with some clever way of discarding them, putting them into the ash heap. Uh, but let me give you another cross-reference here. I, if I, let me see if I can find this offhand. Well, let's see, Genesis 5 or 6, let's see here. Okay, uh, <laughs> All right, this is uh, right before the flood. We read this about um, humanity. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence throughout them, or through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And uh, so, yeah. Um, so God seems to think that uh, people have all corrupted themselves. Hmm. So there you have it. What does the scripture say? Scripture teaches unambiguously and clearly that all of us, are sinful by nature since the fall of Adam. For by the trespass of the one, Adam, we all became sinners by nature. We die, we experience death. There, You see what I'm saying? So, um, don't know what um, Tony Jones is, uh, where he's getting his information from, but it's not God's word. Anyway, so there you go. There, uh, well, that was a short little thing. I mean, no need to play any more from Tony Jones. What he said is uh, patently false. All right, it has come to that time in in the program for us to do our sermon review. That it requires us to play our sermon review music, which is uh, the theme from "The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly" by Hugh Montenegro. Cue the music and let us begin. That's right. The good, the bad, the ugly. Now, those of you who've tuned in for the entire program know the angst that I've gone through deciding which sermon to review today. And I gotta tell you, this is a mixed bag sermon. There's good, and there's not so good. And then there's some bad. It's kind of a, a, a little bit of a hodgepodge. The name of the sermon is Primp, P-R-I-M-P, Primp My Mom, 
Unfortunately, the logo graphic for that particular sermon series is taken from the logo from the TV show Pimp My Ride, and the R is really small. And if you want to see it, you can go to a littleleven.com. That's right, I'm the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. I have it there on the homepage at a little leaven. And you can see how small that R is. It looks like Pimp My Mom. I, I can't, you just can't make this stuff up anymore. Which kind of leads to the question, okay? If the sermon is kind of a mixed bag, there's, there's a clear gospel presentation in it, you'll hear it. Um, if there's a clear gospel presentation, then why is it that this pastor needed to do something as stupid and boneheaded and salacious as try to market this sermon as using the pimp my ride and, and just run the risk of having people misunderstand what it is that he was saying by, well, you, you get what I'm saying? Sometimes we don't, we don't need to attach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the pimp my ride thing. And this sermon was preached on Mother's Day. And uh, so I think that'll give you enough. So without any further ado, uh, this is the Primp My Mom sermon. From The name of the church, by the way, is Barefoot Church, and they are in uh, North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Let me see if they have information on the pastor here so we know who he is. Our leaders. Here we go. Uh, Clay Nesmith. Clay Nesmith. He looks like a nice guy. You know, if you go to their website, Barefoot Church, I don't know. I would never go to a church that's barefoot. Uh, Barefoot Church, uh, you kind of get the idea that it's, again, one of these seeker-driven, these guys bought into the whole seeker-driven way of doing things. And just an unfortunate (laughs) name for a sermon series, Uh, Primp My Mom. Anyway, so here's uh, Pastor Nesmith. Yo, yo, listen up. It's for all you brothers and sisters who love your mothers. Yeah, here we go. Crimp my mom. You gotta love her. She's the only one I got who will love me like no other. Give me life, give me love, give me money, give me dinner. Even when I'm losing mama, love me like a lot. Come on. Get her a hairdo or some of those fancy shoes. My mom. Well, happy Mother's Day. Hey, let's give all our moms a big hand clap today. Wow, man, I am so glad we changed the service times. Look around, would you? It's awesome, man. Mother's Day weekend, and we are glad you are here with us at Barefoot Church. And Joanne was so surprised. Has anybody ever had a surprise quite like that? Anybody? Yeah, man. Surprises are awesome. And, you know, we all like surprises, don't we? I mean, especially the good surprises. Sometimes surprises are bad, aren't they? But we really like the good surprises. We like to give good surprises. I think back to our Christmas series, The Gift Revolution. Anybody remember that series? Yeah, man. Wasn't it just awesome, like, to go through the drive-thru and pay for somebody's meal behind you? And you know what? They drive up, and they're surprised. Man, what is that person 
paying for my meal for. Or, you know, you pay for somebody's haircut somewhere or take somebody a present or whatever and really surprise somebody. Man, we like giving surprises and a lot of us really like what? Getting surprises. You know, yesterday was my birthday and I received a... Yeah, it's awesome. 28 years old. Anyway, I... I received a big surprise from many of you here at Barefoot Church. And I just want to thank you for it, man. They gave me one of those Kindle uh, twos. It's a little thing that you uh, put books and newspapers and all kinds of stuff so I don't have to tote around a big, huge book bag anymore. I can just download my books right on my little, my little Kindle. And so that thing is awesome. And I was so surprised and so excited. I stayed up to like 1 o'clock last night with my Kindle to kind of checking it out and learning how to operate that thing. It was a, a big, big surprise. We like watching those TV shows, don't we? I mean, you know, Home Makeover. Anybody like that show? Huh? It's awesome because, you know what, the people leave and they come back and their, their house has been transformed and they're like, woohoo! this is all, look in here, honey! You know what I'm saying, right? And we love the reaction of people whenever they get a big surprise. Anybody uh, seen that show, What Not to Wear? Anybody? Yeah. That's an awesome show. Actually, it teaches us that, you know, we dress sometimes like we did 20 years ago when we were really cool. And we- you know, it makes me wonder if, uh, if I should rename this segment of the Fighting for the Faith radio program and call it What Not to Preach. What we wore 20 years ago is not so cool anymore and we may need to change our our wardrobe or whatever else sometimes that's an incredible show because people's life is actually transformed sometimes on that show what what not to wear we like that show uh, uh pimp my ride anybody ever watch that i mean they go get somebody's car and deck that thing out man and change the look of that car bring it back to them and the people are so surprised with with their, with their new ride. And we love that show because it's actually people giving to people and changing things about people and really just surprising and bringing joy uh, to, people's, to people's life. You know, we, we like surprises. And there's a lot of people in the Bible, in God's Word, that was surprised. And today I want us to learn uh, from God's Word in 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you this weekend, you can go ahead and Open it up to 2 Samuel because we're going to learn from a guy that got a big surprise. It was an incredible surprise. He went, he went from hero to zero in a matter of minutes. And then he went from zero to hero in a matter of days. He, he got a big surprise. He got a, a bad surprise and then he got a good surprise. And it's an incredible story and it has life-changing information in it that all of us can apply to our life. Because I honestly... Life-changing information in it. I can get life-changing information from the uh, self-help and pop psychology section of my local Barnes & Noble. just want to point this out. Again, I think there's a problem here. This turns Christianity into a therapy. We believe that God is going to deliver a surprise to somebody uh, that's watching... Uh, on the internet or here at our Main Street campus today. Because you see, God's Word is a timeless truth. And what that means is, you know what? What was true thousands of years ago is true today. It just has a little different application. 
uh, sometimes. But the surprise that this guy received in 2 Samuel is available for each and every person that's listening to the sound of my voice today. And I honestly believe if you walk in this room today one way, you have the potential to walk out another. I think if you walked in this room today uh, and, and you really don't know and really understand where you're going in life and what your destiny is, that uh, that has the potential to change today through the power of this story told in God's Word. So you're going to read me a story. If I don't know what my destiny in life is, this story is going to tell me what my destiny in life is. That, that better be one whopper of a story, let me tell you. Because, you know, again, I read the Bible through uh, several times a year. Not sure I've uh, ever run across that one particular story that's going to tell me my destiny. Because that's what this story does. It's a, it's a big surprise. It changed someone's total destination. It changed someone's total lifestyle. And it's an incredible story. And so we're going to take a look at it today. It began in one king's palace. And then it ended in another king's palace. You see, I have to set the story up for you today in order for us to get the potential out of the story, the life-changing stuff out of the story. You see, there was a king, and his name was Saul, and he was king. What does that tell you about his hermeneutic? i, I got to read this to you in such a way that we can dig out the life-changing stuff. We're going to strip mine the scripture to find the life-changing thing. And... King of all of Israel. And Saul was a very, very powerful, powerful king. And one day, a big giant showed up on the scene. Anybody know his name? Goliath. Goliath was a huge giant that threatened the people of Israel, and everybody was afraid. And so this young shepherd boy, his name is David. David shows up to deliver his brothers some, some food. This giant was intimidating the people of Israel, the people that Saul was a king over. And David shows up and says, you know what? What is this giant doing, man? We are a people that belong to God. Why are we afraid of this giant? And the Bible tells the story that young David, a young shepherd boy, goes out and slays the giant with a slingshot and takes him out. And all of Israel starts what? They start cheering. As a matter of fact, a little later on, they say, you know what? Saul, he has killed his thousands. Um, but King David has killed his ten, ten thousands. And they started singing songs of praise to, to David. And you see, this made King Saul very, very jealous. He couldn't stand David because the people were praising who? David's names. And he thought he was going to lo lose his kingdom. And so he set out to, to kill David. He wanted to take David's life from him. But here's the unique twist in the story. King Saul had a son. His name was Jonathan. And Jonathan and David had made a covenant with one another, and they were actually best, best friends. And Jonathan took the information to David and said, my father Saul wants to take you out. He wants to kill you. And so David spent a lot of days of his life running from King Saul. It's King Saul chased him around and, and trying to really kill David. Well, one day there was a battle. It was a huge battle, 
And Saul, the king, died in the battle. He fell on his own sword because he didn't want the enemy to take him out. And, and so Saul lost his very life. He was no longer king of Israel. And then Jonathan also in that same battle, he was killed too. And so no longer did Saul or Jonathan exist. And that's where we pick up this life-changing story today. It, it started in one king's palace, King Saul, and it ends in another king's palace a little bit later down the street. And I just want to share the story with you this weekend because it has the power to change our life. It has potential to deliver life-changing information to you and me this weekend. So 2 Samuel chapter 4 is where we will begin. It has power to deliver life-changing information. Uh, with this story that began in a king's palace, King Saul's palace. 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4 says this. Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth. Everybody say Mephibosheth. You didn't say that, right? Everybody say Mephibosheth. Let's say it together. Mephibosheth. That's an awesome, awesome word. I don't know why in the world anybody would name their kid Mephibosheth. But the Bible says Mephibosheth was crippled as a child. He was five years old when... The report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in the battle. The information came in that Saul and Jonathan both had just died in the battle. The, the royal bloodline, the king and the prince, both died in the battle. And the Bible says, when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. She began to run for her life with this five-year-old baby. And it says, but as she hurried away... She dropped him, and he became crippled. A five-year-old boy. Big surprise, right? And that's not a good surprise. That was a big, big surprise. I mean, he was playing. He was doing life normal, right? Probably playing with his Tonka toys. He probably even had a, a computer of some sort. Because a lot of five-year-old day today, they, they play computer games. But in his day, I don't know what he was playing with. He was probably playing with his friends and just living a normal life, but probably a great life because he, he belonged to royalty, right? I mean, he lived in the king of Israel's palace, man. Yeah, he was a hero. And all of a sudden, that day, his life went to zero. His grandfather, Saul, the king, his father, Jonathan, the prince, both died in the battle. And then his nurse took him, picked him up, began to run with him and flee with him, stumbled and dropped him, and he became maimed and crippled for life. A normal kid doing life like everyday kids playing with his friends, and all of a sudden, he went from hero to zero. His dreams were crushed in the matter of minutes. His destination just changed in the matter of minutes. You know, I, I want to stop here for a second. Um, this sounds like biblical preaching, but we got a problem, and that is, is that he sure is reading a lot into the 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 character of Mephibosheth that isn't there. 
and somehow what's the point here is that it sounds like he's trying to make the point of, you know, here he had all these dreams for his life and they were shattered. And they, and what God's going to do is he's going to unshatter his dreams. I hope that's not where we're going. You know what? I can relate to that. Can you? I can really relate to that. I can relate to. Okay. Can, can we, can we relate to sin? You know, sin, you've heard of it. My problem is not that I don't get to achieve my dreams or that somehow I'm sitting here wringing my hands, hoping and praying that the big dream that I have for my life to be a huge influence and to, and to be a world mover and shaker isn't coming together. And My dream's being crushed in a matter of minutes. I, I can relate to my destination being crushed in the matter of minutes. I can relate to it because whenever I was in grade school, uh, they told me that I was, I, I had some learning disabilities. And, and they took me and they put me in a class where people with these learning disabilities would be educated. And I spent a lot of years in those classes. But before I got there, I had dreams, man. I had dreams of being great. I had dreams of being very, very smart and doing great things with my life. But I got coupled over here. Okay, got to pause here and just do a little reality check. Keep in mind the name of this sermon is Primp My Mom with the logo from the Pimp My Ride uh, television show. <clears throat> so he has a learning disability and his dreams for his life are crushed. Did Christ come to uncrush your dreams for your life? Just asking here. And a little odd that this is the content of the Primp My Mom um, sermon. <sighs> And I got labeled over here, and I became a person with learning disabilities for many, many years in school. And here's the bad thing about it, is I really didn't have a learning disability. I had a problem, and it was called laziness. But nobody did the test to find that out. And so they just kind of like put me over here. I they have a they have a lazy test. Hmm, didn't know that. I should try that one on my children. I had a, I had another problem. I didn't learn the way the teachers were educating me and teaching me. I'm a very visual learner. I learn by visuals, and they were trying to teach me against my learning style, and it put me over here and labeled me and put me in this place, and my dreams of being smart and doing great things with my life became, became crushed because people began to point the finger at me. Doesn't this sound like therapy to you? Just, you know, just... So, doctor, <laughs> so the problem is, is that I, when I was a kid, they, they, they labeled me as with a learning disability. They, they crushed my dreams, and I just wanted to be somebody. <laughs> or, you see what I'm saying? This doesn't seem to be getting at the the 
primary problem that Christianity solves, and that's our sinfulness and the wrath of God, you know, things like that. And so you, you belong over there. And, and, and so I began to be become very insecure and, and live in that place. Oh, no, you were insecure? I bet you even suffered from low self-esteem, too. <gasps> oh, what a terrible thing to have happen to a human being. But then as I grew older, I had another dream, man. I had a dream to be a great athlete with my life. And so I ended up finishing high school and going on to college and earned a, a scholarship there in college. And right before my junior year, I was staged to be in the starting lineup. But one spring practice, I made a choice. I made a bad choice, a bad decision, and my dreams were crushed from being that great athlete at that particular decision. Because I was in the locker room one day, and one of my friends said, Here, take this. It'll make you play better. And, and, and so I did that. And I went out on that field, and I, I didn't really feel because it numbed me, and it kind of speeded up uh, who I really was. And I ended up that day uh, doing something, blowing out my knee in that particular practice, which I rehabbed later, but I was never the same person or the same athlete after that particular injury. That's I mean, he's just a victim. Wow, I mean, if anybody should be allowed into heaven because he was a good person who was just victimized, you know, it would be this guy. Well, I didn't really mean to do that. But I made a bad decision, and my dream was crushed. I was dropped. And that athletic career suddenly faded and ended because I became very insecure about who I was as an athlete, and I always played with the protection of what? Trying to guard that, that injury. I didn't play with reckless abandonment. That's what I used to teach us in football. I played with a guard up, and I was never the same person as an athlete. Oh, I had a dream, man. I had a dream of having a great marriage. You know what? I got married. I got married right at in college. And four years later, that person that said, I do, walked out on me and said, I don't, and dropped me like a rock. Has this guy done anything wrong in his life, or is he just the consummate victim? Just wondering. And left me abandoned. I mean, I had a dream, man. I was going to have a great marriage and a, a great family, but now I'm left in a lonely, lonely place because the person that I had committed my life to walked out on me and left me where I was. I had a dream. You got a dream? I mean, it happens to all of us. I had a dream to be financially independent. Oh, but I made some bad, bad decisions. Because I made a lot, a lot of money. And I spent money like it grew on trees. And my mama told me it didn't grow on trees. But I thought it did. And you know what? I went down a road of getting in a lot of debt and had to spend years digging myself 
out of that particular debt and becoming free again financially. I made some bad decisions. I had a dream, but I continued to make bad decisions because my wants were bigger than what? My needs. Oh, I mean, I had a dream, man. I had a generous heart. I gave some money to somebody. A pretty good bit of money. Never signed a paper to say, hey, I'm going to loan you this money. You know what? They destroyed my financial dream. They never paid me back. I mean, I, I meant good. and They meant evil. You know what? It just kind of is where it was. I had a dream, but I, I was dropped. I had a dream for friendships in my life. You had any dreams for friendships? I made some bad decisions. And some people are no longer my friends today because of the way I treated them. Oh, and I'm no longer some people's friend today because of the way they treated me. It just ended the relationships, man. It's just the way life works. I went from hero to zero in the matter of minutes in a lot of areas of my life. And just like Mephibosheth. And here's the deal. Oh, I see. Yeah, because, you know, Mephibosheth. Yeah, because Mephibosheth, you know, he, he was a kid. You know, they dropped him. He became a cripple. It, it wasn't his fault. He's a victim. <laughs> because you want to know what Mephibosheth's name really means, and you may want to get your paper and pen out and write this down. The word Mephibosheth means the shameful one. That's what his name literally means in Scripture, uh, the shameful one, uh, the one that was a hero and went to zero, the one that was ashamed of his life, and he wore a coat around like this that I destroyed a few Easter's ago. All right, he just put on a, uh, a tattered uh, coat of some sort that looks like it's being held together by duct tape and had to paint it on. Just so you know, you're, you, there's a visual here in the sermon that you can't see because uh, it's radio. So let me continue. He, he wore this around all the days of his life, feeling shameful for what had happened and feeling guilty for what had happened. Again, you know, this doesn't translate really well into sinfulness because, again, Mephibosheth is a victim of something. He was only a five-year-old kid when they dropped him. And, you know, it wasn't his fault that he was a cripple. And the, the way this litany of terrible circumstances that this pastor has described in his life, that's uh, Pastor Clay Nesmith, um, makes him sound like a victim, too. Probably feeling a lot of bitterness and envy because somebody did something to some of his people and somebody dropped him. And he didn't even deserve it. Makes you, you see, there you go. Somebody dropped him and he didn't even deserve it. Uh, folks, the <clears throat> uh, Mephibosheth was a sinner even at the age of five and in need of a savior. Got to point this out because um, each and every one of us, if we understand the scriptures correctly, we know that we are all sinful by nature and objects of God's wrath. We are by nature children of the devil. We deserve all kinds of judgment from God. 
Now we've got a problem with this primp my mom sermon. By the way, anything about moms in here yet? Just, you know. And, and Mephibosheth lived his life like this in shame and guilt and insecure. He felt dirty. He felt like his life had been torn and ripped. He felt like he had been cheated on, maybe with adultery. And Mephibosheth walked around like this, because that's what his name means. I mean, he was probably trying to cover it up all the time, walking around like this, so nobody would see Mephibosheth. And here's the reality of it is, that's where a lot of us are today. We're Mephibosheth. <sighs> okay, now here's the problem. The whole setup for this thing is wrong, though. It's a misdiagnosis of the problem. He's describing basically the gospel to victims instead of perps. We are all perps. We're not victims. <sighs> And we feel like the shameful one based on maybe some decisions we made. Or it could even be the decisions that other people. Decisions. We, can we uh, not ratchet that up like a hundred notches there? I just made some bad decisions. No. You are a wretched sinner and you are in rebellion to God. Bad decisions my foot your problem is, is that you are an outright rebellion to God and you want to overthrow the king of the universe and make yourself God. That's why you make a God in your own image. That's why you continue to sin and disobey God. And you could care less about your creator who is kind enough to let you breathe his air and eat the food from the plants that he created. You see, there's a big difference here. I just want to point it out. And we're walking around with this coat on and it's dirty, it's ripped, it's scarred, and it's tattered. And we feel shameful. We feel guilty. We feel bitter. We, we feel angry. Oh, man. We feel bitter and we feel angry. <sighs> Therapy. This is... Because life is just not fair. And so we that's the big problem that Christ came to solve the fact that life just isn't fair. <laughs> Sorry, getting a little exercised. We put this coat on and and we hide. And here's what we try to do. A lot of times we try to put a cross over it and be very religious and think that's going to patch it up. You know, here's the truth of the matter. I did that, too. Didn't work. I still felt like the shameful one. Or, you know what we'll do? Or we'll, we'll try to wipe it all off or turn our back like this here and maybe nobody will see. We just turn our back on the church and on society and we give them the Heisman and maybe nobody will see who we are. It happens all the time. It's a surprise. We don't really mean to be that way. It just it's going to happen. <laughs> we don't really mean to be that way. <sighs> when are you going to preach the law to show people their need for sins, so that you that their their need for a savior because of their sin? <sighs> or we'll do this. We'll take some duct tape. 
And, and we'll patch the holes up and say, it's, it's all going to be okay and it's not going to really matter. And, but we're still walking around with this patched up jacket on, this patched up life on, feeling very, very shameful, feel like we've been cheated in life. Uh, Clay, um, dude, we're the ones doing the cheating. And that's where we are today. We're Mephibosheth. But there's power in this story because that's not where it ends. Because it didn't end there for me either. Because I felt like the shameful one. But what happened to me is what happens next in this story to Mephibosheth. And I just want to read it to you. Listen to what the Bible says. Next in the story in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 9 we move the story to chapter 9 because it moves from verse from chapter 4 to chapter 9 where it picks up the story. The Bible says this. One day, David, remember David was the one that Saul chased around. He was anointed king, and he had became king of all of Israel, another palace. And it says, one day, David became king, and he asked, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Most people thought he was asking that question so he could take out those people that were still alive in Saul's bloodline. And it says, anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Remember, Jonathan was Saul's son that David had made a covenant with, a promise to and with. And the Bible says this, he summoned a man named Ziba. Everybody say Ziba. That's another weird name who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. He says, the king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. He's fallen and he stumbled and he's broken up and he's crippled. And the king says, well, where is he? And then Zeba replied, he's in Lodabar. If you've got your Bibles, you may want to circle that word. He's in Lodabar, Zeba told him. Lodabar. That's a really important word because Lodabar was a physical location, but it was a very dry, desolate, and dusty place, lifeless with no pasture. It was a place where Mephibosheth was living for many, many years, crippled and lame, down in a house in Lodabar. And that's where he was. The shameful one now in a dry, desolate, dusty place that was lifeless. And you know what? The truth of the matter, I went to church and tried to cover up all this stuff with this cross. I tried to hide it from everybody. I tried to patch it up. But I was down in Lodabar. Dry, desolate place. A place that was lifeless, a place where my destiny had been destroyed and actually killed. A place, see, 
Uh, notice he's engaging in an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. You basically just say, this symbolizes this thing in your life, and you see, Lodabar, that, that symbolizes the bad, dry, desolate places in your life. Lodabar was a place, and, and Mephibosheth lived in a one-room little shack down in Lodabar, and you see, in Lodabar, people didn't sleep good at night. Because everybody in Lodabar was angry at everybody. There were thieves there. Nobody trusted anybody in Lodabar. The dogs would bark all night long in Lodabar and keep everybody up because the thieves were stealing everything from everybody else. And when you lived in Lodabar, that's just the way you did life. And the reason a lot of us today are in Lodabar is because somebody did something to us and we'll never trust anybody else again. And we're in a drive. Uh, Clay, the problem is, is that we're the ones doing things against God. This is the gospel for those perpetual victims. <sighs> Desolate, dusty place. The reason a lot of us are in Lodabar is because maybe we made a bad decision and we think that's just our position in life now. The reason we're in Lodabar is the same reason Mephibosheth was in Lodabar. We've been crippled. We've been lamed in life. And our very souls are scarred to the deepest part of them. Because something may have been taken away from us that we thought we would deserve. And <laughs> uh, the gospel for the, uh, uh, the selfish... Um, spoiled children of America, those perpetual victims who never take any responsibility for anything they've ever done, yes, who are victimized to live in Lodabar for no good reason of their own. This is not what they deserve. They're Now we're down in Lodabar. And we're just kind of coasting down in Lodabar and think life is ended and this is where it is. I'm in financial ruins. I'm in relational ruins. I'm, uh, I'm in my, my popularity. It's gone. My and none of it had anything to do with anything that you've done except for you've been victimized and you may have made possibly, potentially, uh, somehow, maybe one or two bad decisions along the way. Dreams are dead, and I'm down in Lodabar, and when you're in Lodabar, you start feeling very, very lonely, just like the people in Lodabar did. You, you start feeling sorry for yourself a lot. Yeah, you suffer from low self-esteem. And when you start doing that, and you become inward-focused, what happens is you start hating everybody else. And you start destroying the relationships around you. Oh, no. Self-sabotaging behavior. Oh, the, the blight on humanity. And everybody's out to get you down in Lodabar. You're very bitter inside when you're in Lodabar. You don't trust anybody. You're very insecure down in Lodabar. Nothing has value down in Lodabar. Oh, I lived in Lodabar. Have you? Because I was a shameful one. The one feeling guilt. The one that was angry. The one that was saying life is not fair. 
And I lived in Lodabar for a lot of years. I didn't really want to be around people. Actually, I stayed in a dark living room for a long time. <laughs> Isn't this just sad? I mean, he's been victimized. Yeah, um, the problem is, is that the Christian faith has nothing to offer to victims. I'm serious. The solution that the gospel offers is only to perps, only to those who are sinners and see their sin and understand that they're the ones culpable and have earned God's wrath and judgment for their wretchedness, their rebellion, and their outright defiance and sin against God. I didn't want people to talk to me because I didn't trust them. I didn't want to expose myself to anybody because people were out to get me. And I'm telling you, that's where a lot of people live today. They live in Lodabar. They live in a place that's dry and desolate and dusty and very, very lifeless. And they think life has no potential. And they feel like that was the surprise of their lifetime. So, so Jesus comes to, to bring potential back to life for those who've had their, their life potential stolen from them. Because you remember, Mephibosheth went from hero to zero. But now he's getting ready to go from where? Zero to hero. Because, see, the king, David, he says something next in the passage that's absolutely incredible. And if I've lost you up to this point, wake up. Because this could be the surprise of a lifetime for you today. You may have walked in here one way, but here's the deal. You may walk out of here another today because of what's said next. No. Wow, this better be powerful. Look at the Bible, same passage. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 5. It says, where is Mephibosheth down in Lodabar? And listen to what the king said. So David what? Say that with me. Sent for him. David sent for him. In a dry and desolate, dusty, lifeless place. The shameful one. The Bible says the king sent for him. Can you imagine the knock on the door down in Lodabar? Tap, tap, tap. The king wants to see you. I've been living in Lodabar for years. What do you mean the king wants to see me? Why does the king want to see me? And here's what you need to understand today. In the story, David illustrates the king of kings and the lord of lords, the captain, the CEO, the creator, the alpha, the omega. David represents the king, Jesus. And you and so far, the foundation that he's built for this sermon, the problem that's going to be fixed is not the real problem that Jesus addresses. However, now Jesus is the one who he's now basically saying that David is the Christ figure and he's now going to bring Jesus to bear on the story. And he's the solution, the rescuer, the one who does something. 
Uh. We represent Mephibosheth and the king has knocked on the door and says the king has sat down to Lodabar where you're living in this dry, desolate, lifeless, dusty place and he wants to see you in the palace. And your reaction is probably a lot like Mephibosheth's. Look what happens next in the passage. Second Samuel chapter 9, the second half of verse 5 through the first half of verse 7. The Bible says this. When he, he being Mephibosheth, came to David, what did he do? He bowed low to the ground in deep, deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. The king just called him by name. The king called him by name. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have been feeling? The king just called me by name. What in the world does he want with my life? And David says, Mephibosheth, or Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. I'm not here, David, to do anything, or I don't know why you want me, but I am your servant. And he won't even look up, and he's probably trembling because he's the shameful one. And he lived down in Lodabar, and now he's in the house of royalty where the king is living. And look what David says next. And this is really important. He says what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. David said to Mephibosheth, shameful one, the one who had been living down in Lodabar, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know your mama invited you to church today and you came and you were fearful because you didn't know what those people in church were going to say to you. Because maybe you're ashamed of a decision you made last night, last week, or last month. Maybe you're feeling a little bit guilty, and your life is dry and desolate, and you came today, and you were afraid of what might happen here because of your imagery of who the God of the universe is. But you see, in the story, when David said, don't be afraid, it's the same thing that the king of the universe says to you today, no matter where you live and how much you have done. He says, don't be afraid. And you ask the question, well, why shouldn't I be afraid? And the reason you ask that question is because you look at a God that you think has a pointed finger. That is pointing his finger at you and saying, you have screwed up your life. You have screwed up your destiny. You have messed up and nobody wants you. Go live in Lodabar. And that's what you think of God. Okay, again, it's a mixed bag because the law isn't really being done properly here. Um, he's not really fleshing out sin and our need for a savior. There's, well, let's say, hints at it. You know, he's kind of marching around the city, if you would, rather than taking it. 
And he's setting God up as a gracious God, and it's going to come to the cross. Again, mixed bag. Today. But that's not what the king said. He said, don't be afraid. And you say, why? And he reveals next in the passage why Mephibosheth didn't need to be afraid. Look with me as we follow the story. The second half of 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verse 7. This could be life-changing for you. says, what? David says, Mephibosheth, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. He says, I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. David says, I keep my promises. David says, I restore people. David says, I will give you back your destiny because you were in the bloodline. You were in line to achieve something great with your life. So I'm going to give you back. And there's this destiny talk again. (sighs) All the land that your grandfather saw had before you went down the Lodabar. And David says... I am going to secure you a place at my table, the king's table, and I'm going to make provision for you for all the days of your life. That's why you don't need to be afraid of Mephibosheth. What we need to understand today is this. David represents Jesus in the story. You and I represent Mephibosheth. This story is a real story that happened years before Jesus came on the scene. But that's the great God we serve who can illustrate anything at any time down through history and show us that he's in the salvage business, that he's in the restoring business, that he's in the life delivering back your destiny business. Okay, now stop right there. It's starting to really reek of, of of a false gospel at the moment. God's in the recovery business. He's in the in the restoring life destiny business. Uh, man, we've got a we've got a problem here. That He's the one that can hold on to you eternally in a real place called heaven, and you have a permanent seat at the King's table. Again, there's enough gospel in here, though, that just... uh, Tough, because you got to spit out the bones. And the bones are really big and obnoxious. Shameful one, guilty one, angry one, bitter one. The one that's been living down in Lodabar, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. The Bible says that the God of the universe has the power today to bring you out of Lodabar and announce you into his palace and recreate your destiny in life and give you a permanent place to sit at his Recreate your destiny in life. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Bible verse that says that. Table. 
In other words, what he's saying is today, why don't you take off that shameful jacket right here? Because I came to the planet 2,000 years ago, died on a cross, defeated death, made a covenant with people that I would return from the grave. And those who would put faith in the message of this cross, their destiny could change. You see, you see what I mean? There's some gospel in there. The problem is, is that it's as if the gospel is the bait for a hook. Your position in life could change. And it's not a gospel nugget. That's the thing here. The problem is wrong. The solution that he's offering is uh, true and false. The means of achieving the solution, well, it's Christ and the cross. Dangerous, man. I tell you, sometimes the most dangerous things are not the ones that are blatantly false, but are only off by one or two degrees. I could give them back everything I originally wanted for them. I can give them a place of permanent But what you've got to do is you've got to come to the king and you've got to allow him to clothe you in his righteousness. And he's saying today, would you? You've got to allow him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pelagian or semi-Pelagian heresy, uh, decision theology. However, talking about the righteousness of, of Christ as a covering. True. Notice the mixed bag here. You pull off that shameful coat and would you put this coat on? Would you put on the coat of honor of living in a palace? He said, um, you know what? Most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish down in Lodabar. But have he... Cue the sappy music. Along with a gospel presentation. Eternal life in a real place called heaven with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you read the verse after that, Jesus says, I didn't come to the earth with a pointed finger to point out all your shame and all your guilt. I came to the to the earth to restore you into a relationship with the God of the universe and to give you... Uh, hang on a second here. John 3.16, we got to read the verses right after that. To, just doing a little fact-checking here on his sermon because uh, what he said doesn't sound familiar to me. Uh, it, I do understand it says that God did not come and, you know, this, this send his son into the world to condemn the world, but his paraphrase there is a little off. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay. Mm, mixed bag. Back uh, your destiny and your potential by giving you the power of the Holy Spirit so you could dream again. And I came to give you an eternal... Right, I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear what he's doing here. Again, 
there's gospel in here. The problem is, is that this is this gospel is being used to bait a false doctrinal hook. Would you put this coat on? Would you put on the coat of honor of living in a palace? He said, um, you know what? Most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish down in Lodabar, but have eternal life in a real place called heaven with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you read the verse after that, Jesus says, I didn't come to the earth with a pointed finger to point out all your shame and all your guilt. I came to the to the earth to restore you into a relationship with the God of the universe and to give you back uh, your destiny and your potential by giving you the power of the Holy Spirit so you could dream again. And oh, man. This is a false gospel. The, the elements of the true gospel, and they're there, that's the thing, and they're clear, again, are masking a false message. Christ didn't come back to restore your potential. Your dreams. I came to give you an eternal resting place in heaven at my table. And the Bible says in Revelation that one day there's going to be a big, big banquet feast. And all of us who have put faith in that message and we keep pursuing that dream, we're going to sit at the king's table. Is that what you want? Are you... Again, uh, this is decision, this is Pelagianism in action here, folks. You want to stay in Lodabar? No doctrine of original sin. It's the doctrinal of doctrine of original victimhood. Your dreams have been smashed by dirty outside elements outside of your control, and it's not fair. And God, Christ, comes to the earth not with a pointed finger because you've been victimized and made some bad decisions. Instead, he wants to restore the vision you have for your life so that you can experience the potential that he has for you. And you say, well, today I don't want to stay in Lodabar. I came here on Mother's Day, and I didn't know why I was here. I was afraid that somebody would stand with a pointed finger. Here's the deal. This church ain't going to point their finger. You really ought to. Um, point the finger and let people know about their sins. This church is... But don't stop there. Let them know about the fact that Christ died for their sins. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You know, if you have a theology where you don't understand that that's a message that everybody needs to hear all the time, Christians and non-Christians alike, especially Christians, you, you end up messing the whole thing up. I'm going to introduce you to the message of Christ because he restores people and gives back their destiny. Oh, man. Restores people and gives them back their destiny. Folks, I've lived in Lodabar. And God put a dream in my heart. And it's to change the world. And we're well on the way. And I'd love for you to be a part of that dream because I want you sitting at the king's table. And you say, well, that's what I want to do. What do I need to do? You need to do what Mephibosheth does next. Look at the story. Because it's absolutely incredible. Here's what happens next in the story. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8. It says, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant 
that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me. He bowed before David and said, I don't understand this, David. I've been down in Lodabar, but I'm going to receive what you're offering today. And you know what happened next? Exactly what happened in Mephibosheth's life. Look what happens next in the story. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. The king summoned Saul's servants, Ziba, and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. The Bible says Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant. And I will do, I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, the Bible says Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. There's another story in the Bible, and it's found in Luke chapter 15. And it says that there was a boy who went and squandered all his father's belongings away, his inheritance. And he found himself in Lodabar in a pig pen. And the Bible says that one day he wanted to respond and go back to his father because he was tired of living in Lodabar in the pig pen. And so he started home, and the Bible says that the father ran towards him, embraced him, brought him into the house, and said, let's throw a big party. He said, let's dress this boy in royalty and and nice, fine clothes. Let's kill the fatted calf, and let's give him what he deserves today. And the Bible says the boy ran home, and the father threw a big party. Can I tell you something today? If you live in Lodabar, God wants to do the same thing in your life. And this story has the power to change your life if you'll respond today. Like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. God wants to. He's just sitting there waiting for you to do something. Mephibosheth did. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that today. Not going to embarrass you or anything, but here's what I want to do today. In just a minute, we're going to sing a chorus to a song. And I want to pray for you. And I want you to acknowledge today you're tired of living in Lodabar and you want the king's blessings on your life. And you're going to return to him and you're going to enter into his palace and you're going to allow him today to restore your soul from all that bitterness, that anger, all of that stuff that's going on in your life because of maybe choices you made or choices somebody else made. And you- uh, this is not repentance of sins. Uh, these just bad choices, you know. And, and, and uh, maybe you made them. And maybe somebody else made them for you. You've been hating life for years, maybe months. And today the king says, if you come to my palace and you kneel before my table and you say, I didn't deserve this, but I'll receive it. The Bible says the king's going to restore you. The king's going to return your destiny to you. And he's going to give you a permanent place at his table. Where's that restored destiny passage uh, there, Clay? So they're going to come out and they're going to sing the chorus to a song. And I'm gently going to ask you during this time, if that's what you want today, to get out of your seat, come to the front of this stage and kneel down if your body will allow you to. And if not, just stand up over here. Kneel down out of reverence to say, King, this is what I want for my life today. And God's going to begin to do a work in your life. And I'm going to come back out. I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to allow you to go back to your seat. 
but would you let the king know today? I know you're afraid. All right, so a decision theology altar call, you got the gist of it. Again, mixed bag, mostly bad, though, heavy in the bad category. Why? Because the problem was set up incorrectly. Sins were not called what they really are. Uh, This was a gospel to those victimized by other people, not those who are a gospel of those who are sinners in need of a savior uh, to be saved from the wrath of God because they have rebelled against him and sinned against him. (sighs) But then you get some gospel elements. And compared to other sermons that we review here at Fighting for the Faith, these gospel elements were actually pretty clear the problem was is that they were used as bait on a hook to a false conclusion that God wants to restore your destiny. Ultimately, this is a man-centered, Pelagian, decision theology, self-help sermon with some gospel elements. More than a, more than a nugget, though. It was, again, but... And I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out why the name of that sermon is Primp my mom. <laughs> Was there any mom primping going on? <laughs> just, uh, just un- unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. All right. Well, we are sadly at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support. Vital, absolutely, fundamentally vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. If you if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program or previous programs, I do read all of my emails. However, I am not capable of responding to all of them on the air. In fact, not even close. Um, you can email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you like, you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Twitter and receive our subversive microblogging tweets. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won for you by Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. <laughs>